attention to what the Lord said to do. <clears throat> In Luke 6:46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you to do? And in Mark 7, 6 through 9, Jesus addressed the same thing again. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, when Jesus came, he came to announce something that had never been before. He came to announce the kingdom of God. He came to announce that he was to be the Lord for all time, the King of kings, and that this kingdom had come close, and it was to be different than anything anybody had heard. And when he talked to the religious leaders, he was adamant about this, that it was very important not just to, with words, recognize him, and it was not important just with words to recognize God, but that our actions needed to be things. We needed to pay attention to what Jesus said to do and to make sure that we did it. Now, when I used to read through the New Testament, I would come to verses sometimes that were very hard, and I would go, well, I'm just not a mature enough Christian yet to deal with that verse, and so I'll get to it later in life. And the Lord chastened me on that, and he said, all the verses are written for you, and you need to pay attention to those verses that, uh, you know, you're not comfortable with, that strike something in you that's not right. The Lord said, judge not lest ye be not judged. Now, the word judge has two meanings. One is to discern, and the other is to condemn. And in that usage in the Scripture, it means condemn. So the Scripture says, condemn not lest you be condemned. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Jim, there's too much condemning coming out of you. And there shouldn't be condemning coming out. I have shown you great grace, and you need to show great grace and love towards others as I have done to you. And the Lord really struck to my heart that when he talked to the religious leaders, he was harsh to them. And he was saying they had missed the boat. And the two big things was they had not honored what the Lord said to do. And the second big thing was they had exalted the traditions of men to replace the commandments of the Lord. And you'd say, well, how in the world could this happen? But this happens quite easily. When we take things the way we like to do them before, the way our culture likes to do them, and we say, that's the way we're going to do things, and we basically want God to fit in. Now, most Christians are not going to leave God out of their life. They know better than to do that. But the way that they relate to the Lord is not very good at all. Because instead of exalting the Lord as God and pouring their heart out in love to Him, they try to take God and work him into their life. 
but we still maintain the control of our life, we are bringing God in to be a part of it. And sometimes we even think, well, God, you should feel privileged because I'm inviting you in here to be a part of my life. But the Lord was very clear. He didn't want to come in to be a part of our lives. He wanted us to completely abide in Him and for Him to completely abide in us to make a completely new creation. Now, some of the things about God making us altogether new and God having control were mentioned in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament in Isaiah 4, in verse 1 and 2, it says, For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So the number seven is a number of completeness. And in Isaiah it says, in that day, people will want to take hold and say, we want to do our own thing. We want to eat our own bread. We want to wear our own clothes. But God, we want to be called by your name. And what we want to do to be blessed by having your name associated with it, even though it's the things that we want to do, we want that name associated with it. But the second verse in Isaiah 4 goes on to say something very interesting. It says, But in that day the branch of the Lord will be glorious. So in the same day that people want to do their own thing, and to attach the name of Jesus to it. In that day, there will be a true branch of the Lord that is seeking out the Lord's will, that your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. And that branch will be glorious in the day that we have these people trying to just get God's name associated with what they want to do. This is brought up again in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, the fourth and the fifth verse, when describing how people will be in the last day, and it's not a good description of how things will be, but many things we can see in our day right now. And in the list, starting in verse 4, he, starts, he continues on to say people will be treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such people as these. So the Scripture says there will be a day, and indeed we are certainly seeing that in this day, where people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They want to do things their own way, and when it comes to godliness, they have a form of godliness but the godliness has no power, for they deny the power of it. Now, this is a huge thing, because when Jesus comes into our life, he is altogether powerful. He changes and does things we could never do. Our flesh can never generate righteousness. Jesus can generate righteousness within us. He becomes our righteousness. We don't know exactly how he does it, but we know he does it. 
You know, Jesus abiding in us and uh, us abiding in Jesus will always be a mystery. It'll be a mystery until we get to heaven and see as we are seen. But it's like breaking an egg into flour. If you took an egg and you broke it open into flour and you mixed it up, well, you would look at that and you would say, well, the egg is in the flour and the flour is in the egg. And because the egg and the flour are together, they have formed a new creation. Now, if somebody came along and said, well, I want my egg back, well, you can't do that. Once the egg is mixed with the flour, you just can't pull it back out. And that's the way Jesus is in us and us in Jesus. He comes together with us, and it makes a new creation. Well, this is a tremendously powerful thing, but it doesn't work if we hold on to and say, God, you get to have a role in my life, but I'm really orchestrating my life, and if you do things or suggest things that I'm not that interested in or don't like or will cause me to be embarrassed among my peers or I might look awkward if I did that, well, those things, there's a good chance I'm not going to do those. And if we do that, we really cut short our relationship with the Lord. Now, God chooses to do things we would not choose to do. And he does them in our life. Now, just recently in our congregation, I mean, in the last three months, I mean, there are, three, uh, there are several things that have happened. I'm very aware of the fact that my mother died. I was sitting at her side in, our living, in the living room, the house I grew up in. And a day or so before she passed on, um, she just was coming around very rarely during the day. But I was there once, and she talked to me briefly. And I mean really briefly, like three or four sentences. But one of the things she said to me was, they are asking me to cross over. They are asking me to cross over. And I told her, go ahead and cross over. Everybody here is ready for you to cross over. It's a good thing to cross over head on. And just tried to encourage her to cross over. Now, she didn't cross over in the next 30 seconds, but it wasn't two days that she did. But what a wonderful conversation to hear my mom say, I'm looking and seeing these people asking me to cross over, to welcome me into the promised land. And John Upchurch has passed away. I don't know, it'll take us a long time to, to deal with missing John. John is such, uh, he was such an important part of this church and the fellowship and to so many people was such an inspiration. And John did what the Lord said to do. It was impossible to talk to John for five minutes about something not in the Lord. He was full of the Lord. And you were with John, he was full of the Lord. Well, I'm not so sure I wanted John to pass away. I thoroughly enjoyed being with John, but it was God's time. And I remember when John first shared with me about how the Lord had changed all the fillings in his mouth to gold, and I was just amazed. And then I took pictures of his teeth. It's a little awkward, but I keep pictures of John's teeth because all of his fillings were turned to gold. God just came in his room one night, did a special thing just to show him that he loved him. God does things we don't plan. God transforms us in ways we need to be transformed, and he knows what to do. So let's just take one story that's in the New Testament that may not have gone the way Paul and Silas planned. So as you know, Paul and Silas were ministering, and Paul went to Philippi. They went to Philippi. They were 
teaching the people and a number of people being converted. There was a woman that was following them around who had a spirit of divination, which means she could foresee what was going to happen in the future. And they're demons of divination, no question. And in Deuteronomy, it talks specifically about not, uh, not associating in any way with people who have powers of divination because demons have powers of divination. And they would fall Paul and Silas around and they would say things like, pay attention to these people because they are the messengers of the Most High God. And she would just keep saying things like that. And after a while, Paul just got fed up with it and he turned and he cast the demon out of the woman and she no longer had any powers of divination. Well, her owner was really upset about that and said, oh my gosh, I've lost my funding stream because this woman was bringing in lots of money for me. He went to the magistrates. He told them all sorts of things about Paul and Silas that weren't true. Paul and Silas um, were brought before the magistrate and beaten, and they were beaten severely. After they had been beaten severely, they were taken to jail, and they were locked up in chains. And so when we read in Acts 16 about Paul and Silas, a good section of verses is 22 through 27. It says in verse 25, Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Now we know this from reading the scripture, but I want to challenge you to think if you were writing the story, what would you have said Paul and Silas were doing? Well, they went into Philippi following the lead of the Lord. They were sharing the word of God with people who desperately needed it. That was certainly adhering to God's instructions. God had definitely told them to do that. They went and did it. And then they cast out the uh, demon, which is definitely what they were supposed to do. And then what happened? They were beaten severely. Well, in our natural way of thinking, they had really followed the Lord, done the right things. It really didn't justify them walking into such severe punishment. But that's what happened. But you know, there was something in Paul and Silas that didn't stop and complain and say, oh my gosh, how can this work out now? I tried to follow the Lord, and it ended up that now I've got all these broken bones and bruises, and I'm hurting over my whole body, and I'm chained in a dank prison. That's what many people would say. That's what many people would say, Lord, you have failed me because I went out and was very careful to do what you said to do, and I was smashed. But there was something in Paul and Silas that rose above that. And what did it say they were doing? It said they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Because Jesus had taken them to a place where they could say, as Paul did say, that I do not regard the sufferings of this present age to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. That he reckoned all things that were happening to him, including physical pain and beating, not to be consequential compared to following the Lord and the joy of knowing Christ his Savior. In, that in, in Philippians, he writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, and that he counts every single thing in life as rubbish compared to that knowing of Christ. Now, Paul had given his life over to the Lord, 
As a matter of fact, it always bothered me that when God came to Ananias to go pray for Paul, that his scales would be removed from his eyes, that the first thing he told Ananias was, you must go and tell Paul how much he is to suffer for me. Now, that is not exactly a, 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 an altar call, if you know what I mean. Paul had had those scales on his eyes he couldn't see, and he said, Ananias, go and remove the scales. And the first thing you say is, I want you to know how much you're going to suffer for Christ. That's not a sales pitch. There had to be something that transcended, and there was. For the Holy Spirit, the presence of the living Christ, had come into Paul, and it transcended earthly suffering. You know, Helen and I were over at Barbara's house last night, and Barbara had a run-in with a door that wouldn't move when she was trying to go through it. And in the end, she broke her radius in three places. And so that was right down near the wrist, and she's sitting there in this cast, and she's hurt her thumb a lot. That's no fun. That is no fun. Well, you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, why in the world did you let that happen to me? Or you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know why that happened to me. I know I'm in your hands. And you guide me and protect me, and, and you be my fulfillment through this so it would be glory to you. And that's what Barbara's doing. She's not complaining. She's a wonderful woman, but we have these things that happen from time to time. Um, it seems like to me that whenever I have a flat tire, it's raining. Why is it raining when I have a flat tire? And if we dwell on those kinds of things and say, Lord, you have got to do it the way I want to do it predominantly, and then I'll give you a good bit of time, but I'm still the one. He will work it out of you. You can't approach the Lord by saying, I am the Lord, and you get to go with me. The only way to approach the Lord is that you are the Lord, and I am going with you. Now, when the disciples were being sent out in Luke 9, 1, the Bible says that Jesus called them together and he gave them power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And then listen what he said in Luke 9, 2. He said, Proclaim the kingdom of God and perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even take two tunics. Now, who amongst us would take off on any journey without taking provisions? And yet the Lord sent them out and said, don't even take a change of clothes. He said, you just go out the way you are. Now, that is not the way of man. But when they came back later, Jesus asked him and said, you took nothing. Did you lack anything? And they said, no. We didn't lack anything, even though we had made no provision. Corey Ten Boom tells the story that her father tells her, when you're getting on the train, when do I give you the ticket when you were a young girl? And she said, right before you get on the train. And her father said, that's the way it is with the Lord. You receive the sustenance right as you need it. But the way we would plan is let's get a whole bunch of sustenance to get us through this thing so I know where I can go tap and I know where I can get results so I don't have to sit back and be concerned about that. And Jesus is saying, 
I want you to know that I am the giant pile of sustenance. In Philippians 4, 19, it says that my God will supply all of your needs according to the riches of glory that are in Christ Jesus. And that's where God wants us. He wants us in the riches of glory that are in Christ Jesus. But our tradition, the tradition of man, is that we put our faith and our hope in our plans and our powers and our abilities. Now, if we do that, God's only going to be able to inch us along. He's trying to get us out from that and to say, I want you to know the riches of glory that are in Christ Jesus, and you live by that. It's different than the way that we have lived. Now, when Jesus came, when Jesus came one of the things that we really enjoy about Jesus is that he said, I came that you might have life, and you might have it more abundantly. So we try to have that abundant life by giving Jesus a nice compartment in our life, and then us really controlling the most of what goes on. And that doesn't happen. And then we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, why, where is that joy? I had a joy when I recognized that I could not deal with my sin and you were the total propitiation or the total atonement for my sin. I had to leave it totally up to you. And I had joy that was wonderful. I want that joy again. And the Lord comes to us and says, the very thing that you did with your sin, you need to do with your life. Take your life decisions, your hopes, your dreams, your kids, your house, your money, all of that stuff, and give it to me just the same way that you gave me, let me be the forgiveness for your sins. Let me be the abundance in your life. And mostly we resist that. We give the Lord some, but we hold on to the big ones. We hold on to the big ones. I've said this before. I'll keep saying it. The tithe was in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God wants 100% of our money, not 10%. Now, that doesn't mean take 100% of your money and send it into the altar next week, although into the offering next week, although that would make Catherine and Yvonne quite happy. But that doesn't mean that. I'm not saying that. It's opening up and saying, Lord, here's all my money. Here's my house. Here's my car. What you want me to do with it, I'll do with it. Not 10%, but everything that you have. And then that's when we enter in. Now, it said of Jesus in Hebrews 1.9, it says of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Now, how was, he, how was Jesus anointed with the oil of joy? Because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, when we see that in our life that we hold back part of our life from Jesus as something that's wicked, that's bad, when we see that, we'll want to get rid of it. We need to get rid of it. Jesus only comes where he can fully be Lord. He is always knocking on that door that he be fully Lord in all the areas of our life. That joy that we want, that joy that we want, Jesus had because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, that's loving righteousness. And hating wickedness is self-explanatory. So when we come to that place in our life that we love the Lord and the thing that's not of God we hate, 
we will find that same oil of joy above our companions that Jesus had. That's where that joy is. But we tend to mess around and not hate wickedness, but play with wickedness. We play with the idea it's important for me to be the one in control. Now, we would now t never tell Jesus straightforward, I'm in control, but that's how we live our life. That's why he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you don't do what I say. You put out the words, but it's not real in your life. If the Lord really is the Lord, he has everything of ours. All together, and our purpose is to serve him. And when Jesus talked about this, he said, I only see what I see the Father, I only do what I see the Father doing. And that's how I know what to do. And I want you to be that way with me. I want you to be so close to me that you know what I am doing, and then that's what you do. Now, that is a very close relationship, and it involves being fully given over to the Lord so we can walk in that place. Now, there's a verse in 2 Chronicles to me that is really important in this, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. And it says, The eyes of the Lord roam the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is blameless before him. I'm going to read that again. The eyes of the Lord roam the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is blameless before him. It's really interesting to me to think of the Father looking over the whole earth to say, whose heart is really given to me? Whose heart is given over that they love me with their whole heart? And for those people, I am roaming and searching to show myself to be strong. Second Chronicles 16.9, I think a very important verse. Now, I want to really emphasize that in the Old Testament, there was this prediction so that we would understand that there was to be an inheritance in Christ that was totally above and beyond anything on the earth and was to be special. In fact, when land was handed out by the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 18, when they were handing out all the land, they came to the tribe of Levi and, they were look, and the, it was going to be the time to say how much land did they get. And in Deuteronomy 18, 2, it says that God is the inheritance of the Levitical priests. God is the inheritance of the Levitical priests. So they received no land because their inheritance was God. Now this type is very important because we, the Scripture says, are the priests of our God. There is no more Levitical priest. It stopped with John the Baptist. After that, God didn't ordain any more Levitical priests. Now, men kept doing it, but God didn't do it. It says, up until John was the law and the prophets, and since then the kingdom of God is preached. So up until John was the law and the prophets. After that, the priesthood were the followers of Christ. That's why it says in Hebrews that we are a tribe of priests. And just like the Levitical priests had God as their inheritance, God is our inheritance, because we are the priests unto our God. Now, when we see the value of that, then losing somebody or somebody passing on, when we see that and we look at world events, we enter a place 
that is beyond the comfort of natural events or the comfort of saying, I've got enough money to make it through another year or the joy that comes from finishing off winter and entering into spring or maybe that the pandemic will settle down and it won't be such an issue. All those things aren't unimportant, but they're small in importance when we put them to the fact that we have the inheritance of God, that we are to inherit him. And that's what Jesus was bringing about. That's what he was sharing. So the big thing I want to make kind of a point on this is that God went to great extremes to show that if we'll do this thing which we consider as inconvenient, not the way we would normally do stuff, he really blesses that. And he, did, he explained that in two ways in the Scripture. And one is the story that we're all familiar with. Uh, we call it the parable of the talents, where a man gave ten, five, and one talents, and then went away and came back to see what return on investment the persons had gotten. But Jesus said something when he told that story that was very important. When he told that story, he turned to the person who had ten talents and said, because you have been faithful, and this is the word he used, because you have been faithful in very little, I will put you over ten cities. To the person who had five talents, he said, because you have been faithful in very little, I will put you over five cities. Now, what happened was, there was an assignment from the Lord that wasn't a big thing. It was just take this and make sure it's getting the right interest or invested the right way. But what happened once the person was faithful in that is they were put over 10 cities. Now, you imagine that somebody gave you $10,000 and said, be faithful over this for a year, and they came back and said, okay, you're over Atlanta, Dallas, New York, uh, Los Angeles, Portland. You're over 10 cities. That's a gigantic change. But the Lord constantly was saying, he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. So the Lord asks us about the things in our life that we may deem, it's not so important I have the right attitude towards this person. I enjoy condemning them. And as a matter of fact, they deserve to be condemned. Well, I hate to tell you, but all of us deserve to be condemned. And the Lord is asking us to be loving even as he was loving towards us. It may not be a big deal to us. It's a big deal to the Lord because the Lord asked us to do it. And so the transition that occurs in our life is that we move from an assessment that we make of how important something is to saying, if Jesus said to do it, it's super important, not because I understand it, not even because I agree with it, but because Jesus said to do it. And he said, the person that will be faithful in little he will vastly expand what they're put over. But most of us aren't faithful in little. We know a lot of things. I regularly have to sit down and make a list just to say, what do I know Jesus wants me to do? And then to look at that list and say, am I doing those things? And lots of it has to do with relationships and bitterness inside and, and, and being judgmental and not loving the way the Lord would love, but having good reasons that we don't. But the Lord said, I want you to do it. And if you do it, then what happens is he puts you over a lot, and you actually come to know him. 
And so the second place that this is in the Scripture is in the Song of Solomon. And in the Song of Solomon, there's a bride and a bridegroom, and the bridegroom is a type of Jesus, and the bride is a type of the church. And the bride goes to bed one night, and she's all fixed up and down, and Jesus knocks at the door. And her first response is, I can't open the door. I've got my bed clothes on. I've taken off my shoes, and I'm in the bed. I can't go open the door, because opening the door was inconvenient. But eventually, she does go up and open the door, she can't find Jesus. She has to go out and look for them. But she does go up and open the door. She does the inconvenient thing. She does the inconvenient thing. And what's so important is that once she does that inconvenient thing, if you follow down in the verses, it turns out that Jesus becomes extremely beautiful to her. And all through the Song of Solomon up until that time, the bridegroom had described the bride as being very pretty. And it was very nice, and it was very extensive, and it, and it happened multiple times. But the bride had never said that the bridegroom was beautiful. Never. But once she did the inconvenient thing, all of a sudden she saw the bridegroom in a whole different light, and there are 12 verses where she just describes how beautiful the bridegroom is. And this is true in our life. Once you do the inconvenient thing and walk with the Lord, even though it's not the way you would naturally do it, Jesus becomes more beautiful. Now, I have often in my life prayed, Lord, please reveal more of yourself to me. I want to know you more and more and more. And he's faithful to that prayer. And he puts things in my life that are inconvenient that he asks me to do. And I say, well, I don't want to go do those things. I want to get to know you more and the richness of how you are. But those aren't disconnected. When we'll do what the Lord says to do, we are acknowledging him by our works that he is my Lord. Not just our words, but by our works he is my Lord. Now, when we acknowledge him by our works that he is Lord, he becomes more revealed to us and more beautiful. Believe me, he's more beautiful than we can perceive. But that revelation of his beauty and his wonder and glory comes because we have done the thing that's inconvenient to us because it's what he wanted. So I prayed on one hand, Lord, please reveal yourself. And then he puts inconvenient things in my life. And I say, I don't want to mess with those. I want to get your revelation. He said, go over there and mess with those. And do what I said. Don't just talk about what I said. And then all of a sudden he becomes beautiful. And that's a mystery in the Christian life, but it's something that the enemy pushes very hard to keep us away from. Let G the enemy's okay with letting God in our circle of thought but just don't let God be Lord and majestic. Don't serve him. Just consider him. And you've got to move from considering the Lord to serving the Lord to see the richness of the Lord. And Paul and Silas saw that richness. I, I thought Paul was a nut when he said, I consider this, the sufferings of this present age not to be compared. Paul's was beaten like 39, with 39 lashes five times. He had shipwrecks. He had all sorts of, he had stonings. How could he say that those sufferings were insignificant compared to what was to be revealed? But he was in Christ, 
And in Christ in a special way where if the Lord wanted it, that's where he went. And so Jesus gave him a peace and a love and a joy that's not of this world. And that's what the Lord holds out for us. But there's no shortcut. There's no way to say, I'll give the Lord $5,000 if I can get the peace, love, and joy that Paul had. No, you can't do that. To get the peace, joy, and love that Paul had, you have to love him who is peace, joy, and love, and that's Jesus. And that means we need to do what he said. So this is a little mystery. Why aren't we more faithful to do what he said? Because a lot of us are still just in control of our life, and God's just in there a bit. Sometimes he's in there a bit more, but he isn't the Lord of our life. He's a part of our life. So Jesus was trying to explain this to people, and he was trying to say, if you call me Lord, then treat me Lord, but be sure to do what I want to do. And I want to close um, with, by jumping into Haggai. So Haggai is not a, a book that is talked about a lot. You know, I mean, it's got two chapters. Uh, two chapters in Haggai, and to tell you the truth, I don't know that I have more than just one point to make about all of Haggai. But I think it's a very good point. And some of this, to me, is just great about how the Lord is faithful. He's always faithful. But in Haggai, Haggai, of course, was a prophet, and um, this was when Darius was a king, and um, Haggai was talking to Zerubbabel, and he was talking about things that were happening, and um, the Lord spoke to Haggai, and I'm going to start reading in Haggai 1, verse 2. And I'm just going to start by reading through verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And then in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain and the new wine and the oil on what the earth brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. So the Lord comes and says, this is what you do. You look to yourself first and to me second. He said, you've got to look to me and my house. You have got to look to me. And he says, because you look to yourself first and put me second, all your endeavors are lacking. Everything you're trying to do, it lacks. You go out and plant, and you get very little. All the things you put your hand to, they don't really succeed. You just get marginally ahead. You put your money in bags with holes in it. I said, but if you'll attend to my house, then this will change. 
Now, I thought the story was going to end, that they would go out there, they would build the house of the Lord, and then just as soon as they finished building the house of the Lord, you know, put up the last thing and had a dedication service, right then the Lord would bring blessing. But that's not the way the story went. This is the way the story went, picking up in Haggai 2, starting in verse 18 and 19. God says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree had yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. So what did the Lord do? He let the people move from being interested in their house to laying the foundation of his house. In other words, just getting started, getting 5% done. And as soon as they had just firmly gotten started, then he poured out a blessing. He didn't wait for the whole thing to be done. He waited for their hearts to change, that they would go and do the thing that he said, and when their hearts had changed and they had put their hand to doing that, then he poured in the blessing. And this is what happens in the Lord. When you have that release that you say, if it's inconvenient, if it's difficult, if it's not the way I would plan it, but I'm going to do it anyway, that's when the blessing comes, just like Haggai. That's when the release comes. And suddenly you know the Lord in richness that you never knew before. That we know him now in ways we didn't know was a way that he could be known. And we know him. And we've known certain people like that, that walk in that place. And it's wonderful to be around them. So the Lord is saying, pay attention to what I've said. Pay attention that your actions follow your words. That not only do you call me Lord, Lord, but you have given me your life and you pay attention to what I say to do with it because there's tremendous blessing for you. There is an abiding of me and you and you and me that is not known any other way, and it is what makes heaven heaven. In John 17, 3, it says, To know the Father and the Son is eternal life. And Jesus is saying, To know me, you need to obey me, and when you obey me, I will reveal myself unto you. Jesus said that flat in John. I think it's John 14, 20. He said, if you will keep my commandments, I will reveal myself to you, and the Father and I will come and live in you, if you'll keep my commandments. But we can't skip them. We can't just say, this one's inconvenient. That's telling the Lord he's not really the Lord. So that revelation's held up to us, but the enemy fights this in a big way. Very few people walk in what we're talking about today. Very few people ever walk that way. But it's the promise and the gift of God, which is the bless, all the blessings of God in Christ Jesus. And it's open to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been gracious unto us. And from day one, you knew that fulfillment was in fellowship with your son and with you. And you've made way that we can know that fulfillment and all the riches and glory that's there. I ask that you help us with inconvenient things, things we would not normally choose to do that hold us back and set our hearts that we love you so much that the inconvenient thing is a small thing 
because we're doing it to please you. I ask your blessing now on each one in this congregation as we open up, Lord, our church again to gather. I ask your blessing on Skyland Methodist Church that you be glorified in this place, that others be attracted to this hill, to this place, Lord, to come in and find and meet the living Christ to change their lives, Lord, that the gospel be shared, that Jesus be glorified. I particularly pray for stubborn places in our life that have been there 40 or more years, that, Lord, you take stubbornness that we've had and get rid of it. Melt it, Lord, and send it away, that we not be a stubborn and stiff-necked people, but we be pliable in the hands of the potter. Thank you again, Lord. We give you the honor and the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.